is meeting number four of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration. It is my pleasure to welcome both our witnesses uh, appearing before the committee today. Uh, I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Christian, President African Scholars Initiative, and also His Excellency Dr. Khalil Rahm, uh, Khalilur Rahman, High Commissioner of People's Republic of Bangladesh. I would start with Dr. Christian, President of African Scholars Initiative. You can please start. You will have five minutes for your opening remarks. Thank you, Dr. Christian. We can hear you now. We'll start okay. the class. You have five minutes. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair and honorable members of this committee for the privilege to appear before you. This podcast came to be because I want to reignite discussions about Pan-Africanism. And the purpose is to plant seeds of unity and inspiration among Africans, both at home and in the diaspora. I believe we have come to the stage where our continent is more vulnerable than ever. And it's up to us to decide our fate moving forward. What we will come to realize, I hope, is that we're so much more alike than we're different. And this show is just a small contribution to the public discourse that is going on in Africa right now. My name is Soshima Iro, and this is the Pan-African Experience. On today's episode of the Pan-African Experience, I'll be speaking to Dr. Gideon Christian about anti-racism reports that was produced by Canada's Department of Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship. Dr. Christian is an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary. Before joining the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary, Dr. Christian worked part-time as an adjunct professor at the Faculty of Law in University of Ottawa. He also worked full-time as a legal counsel with the National Litigation Sector at the Federal Department of Justice, where he conducted electronic discovery in high-profile litigation involving Government of Canada. His research activities centers on law and technology, specifically on electronic discovery, artificial intelligence and law, and the environmental impacts of technology. Dr. Christian's research work has been published in Canadian Journal of Law and Technology, Utrecht Journal of International and European Law, African Journal of Library, Archives and Information Science, and Canadian Bar Review. I am grateful and honored to have Dr. Christian on the podcast. Dr. Gideon Christian, welcome to the Pan-African Experience. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You appeared twice before the Canadian House of Commons Committee you know, on Citizenship and Immigration. You made sub submissions you know, on the hearing on the High Commission uh, on the Canadian Study Visa Refusal Rate for foreign students. Is that, is that correct? Yes, I did. Okay, the, IIC, the IRCC report, you know, the Anti-Racism Employee Focus Group's final report was published in 2021. This research was conducted by Polara Strategic Insights on behalf of the Department of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. And uh, this study consisted of 10 online focus group discussions with a total of 54 employees from across IRCC. The aim of this study was to understand current experiences of racism within the department, as well as perceptions of management's handling of racism within the workplace, and gather suggestions for changes in policy and practices moving forward. Now, the report exposed systemic racism and racial bias within the IRCC as, uh, you know, as a Canadian government department. 
So uh, please, I was wondering, could you give like a brief rundown of the key findings uh, in, in this report? Uh, thank you. Thank you very much for uh, having me. Uh, so, like you rightly noted, the uh, Polar Report was a report that was um, uh, funded by the IRCC to identify or try to identify issues within the organization with regards to racism, to find out where the organization is on this matter and where they should be heading to. Uh, that report was rele released last year, like you rightly noted. Um, and I must tell you, as someone who has been following immigration issues in Canada for over a decade now, uh, that report did not come as a surprise to me because that report actually, what that report did among others was basically to confirm the issue most of us within the immigration law community uh, have always known to exist with the IRCC. And that is the fact that um, there is racism in the organization. Um, the Polara report established this fact. The Polara report noted that there is racism within IRCC with regards to the way minority or racial minorities within IRCC was treated, but even further beyond that, that the racism within IRCC also transcends or transcends beyond the treatment of racial minority staffs to even processing of immigration applications. And that report uh, cited very candid examples of uh, elements of racism, widespread racism within the organization. It made reference to African countries or widespread reference of African countries by uh, uh, IRCC officers as the dirty 30 or dirty 30 countries. It also referenced uh, stereotyping of Nigerians as particularly corrupt and untrustworthy and uh, uh, it also goes further to show that the racism in IRCC, I mean, it's a particular example of how racism in IRCC impacts the processing of uh, immigration applications or requirements for certain immigration applications. And it talks about discriminatory rules in relation to immigration application from certain countries. A very good example that was given was additional document requirements for applications from Nigeria. And you find these two references I've made on page 11 and page 13 of the report. So when that report was released, it didn't come as a surprise because um, even among immigration lawyers in Canada, when you speak with them about um, immigration applications from Nigeria, uh, from not just Nigeria, from Africa, um, Nigeria often comes in here because Nigeria is like majority of the application comes from Nigeria. Nigeria is among the top ten, so which of course um, symbolizes the continent. So when you when you talk with immigration lawyers here, what they normally tell you is that look, when we're finding any immigration application like this stuff is our study permit relating to 
countries from Africa. We file it in anticipation of litigation. And what does that mean? That when they are filing it, they know or they are very sure, over 90% sure that the application will be refused. And when application is refused, you have to go to court to challenge it. So what they normally do is when they are filing that application, they are filing it with anticipation that they are going to be going, they will be going to court at the end of the day. So that is what they mean when they say they file the application in anticipation of litigation, because they will file the application, they know that the application is greater chance the application will be refused, then they will have to go to court. So it's equally as you know, as good as okay, let's start preparation for litigation from day one, even when we are filing the application. So this is a, an issue that has been going on, but it's just like you know, before the Polar Report. Uh, uh, most of us who were aware of this issue kind of tend to keep it close to our heart, not go vocal or public about it. Because uh, as a black person, when you raise those issues, there's always a tendency to get a pushback. You're accused of, you know, playing the race card, you know. So we kind of know the problem, but um, we're skeptical in bringing it or being too vocal about it so that we're not accused of playing the race card. So when the Polar Report eventually came out, the Polar Report was like, oh, this is the problem. And that problem was exactly what we know to have been the problem. So most of us who were advocating for change, the Polar Report kind of gave us a voice to be able to push further, to advocate further for those change, because this time it's no longer a case of playing the race card. An independent third party has clearly established that that problem we have been aware of actually did exist. And here is the problem. Yeah, I like the way one of the committee member in the hearing said, uh, you know, he referred to your comment as an allegation. And you have to push yeah. back to say this is fact, because this is as a result of the research from the report. So you are citing the report and not an Thank allegation. You. And, and I, I mean, I, I love that point you brought up. And that ties to what I have said earlier on. You know, the reason why before this report, we are kind of cautious not to be too vocal about it. Because if you get too vocal, you know, you'll be accused of playing the race card. Oh, you are making an unfounded allegation or accusation. So when I appeared before the committee and the member raised that issue, I mean, he might have raised it, you know, cautiously or maybe harmlessly. But um, I've, I thought it was very important for me to fall back on the report, and which is the good thing about that report, to say, no, I'm not the one saying this. It is the report that is saying this. I wasn't the one that authored the report. IRCC authored the report, and this is what their own report said. And what I actually did there was to take the member, not to the final report, but actually to the draft report, because the draft report was even more damning than the final report. I obtained a draft copy of the report through access to information request. So the final report was more like a kind of polished version of the draft. And if the polished version was that damning, imagine what the draft report looked like. So I, I, I think uh, that Polar report, it's a very good tool for everyone, both in IRCC and those of us outside who criticize the racism in IRCC. It is good for us because it has given us opportunity to make the world know that, look, this fear we've been having is not unfounded. It is well-founded. And on the other part, for IRCC, the department itself, it kind of 
give them opportunity to do a soul searching to see, oh, if this is the problem we are having, and it is very clear that this is the problem, how do we go about in addressing it? Okay, and there's also uh, what you highlighted during that uh, hearing uh, with regards to uh, financial uh, proof of fin finance. You know, maybe students from Africa are required to have set more money than the rest, and the money has to be in account for a number of uh, period of time. Please, can you elaborate on that as well? Absolutely. Now, let me take you back again to the Polara Report. Page 13 of the Polara Report. This is for page, I mean, one of the findings in page 13 of the Polara Report. Um, but under the heading, I'm reading the paragraph, the paragraph under the heading, buyers says in IRCC program policy and client services. It noted that participants expressed concern that some of the overt and subtle racism they have witnessed by both employees and decision makers can probably most sorry can and most probably impact case processing, that is processing of application. Some points to differences in refusal rate by country as a key indicator that some forms of bias may be at play. Then it went further. Examples of, of course, discriminatory rules. Discriminatory rules for processing immigration application for some countries or regions that are different from or different than others. Example, additional financial document requirements for applications from Nigeria. Now, this finding here did not go into details about the financial requirements I discussed at um, the committee or with the committee, but at least it kind of gives, gives us an indication. So let me go further in more like highlighting the main issue here, which this um, report tang tangentially touched on. There are two immigration programs for uh, expedited programs for processing of study permit applications. One of them is the student direct stream known as SDS, which is applicable in some countries in Asia and I think one or two French speaking countries in Africa. Then there is the Nigerian Student Express, which is applicable specifically for Nigeria. Now the essence of this, the purpose of these two programs is the same expedite processing of student permits or study permit application. Now, what are the requirements under these two programs? Under the SDS, the student direct stream, which is uh, 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 applicable to some Asian countries and some countries outside Asia, the applicants is required to show that they have $10,000 guaranteed investment certificate. That is the financial requirement. Okay. So I can go online or walk into a Canadian bank. I, I can sell my assets today, deposit the amount into any account, walk into a Canadian bank and obtain a $10,000 guaranteed investment certificate. And then the next day I file my application under the student direct stream, if I am coming from those countries that are under the student direct stream. I can complete this within two days. $10,000 guaranteed investment certificate. Now compare that with the requirements under the Nigerian Student Express. The Nigerian Student Express, you are required within a period of 10, 
uh, one year or uh, 10 months, uh, you are required to have $30,000 sitting in your account for a period of six months. So let me use the same illustration previously. So if I go to the, oh, I want to go and study in Canada, I dispose of my asset for the purpose of you know, pursuing my education in Canada. I have to, to qualify under the Nigerian Student Express. I have to deposit that $10,000 in a bank account, let it sit there for six months before I qualify for expedited processing under the Nigerian Student Express. So whereas one, you are required to just show guaranteed investment certificate. In the order, you are required to have the money sitting in your account for six months. And mind you, if you are from Nigeria where the currency, the values on, I mean, constantly on daily basis, if you put $10,000 into a Nigerian account today, in six months time, that money will not be worth $10,000. It will be worth less. And you are forced to do that just to qualify under the Nigerian Student Express. So these are clear discriminatory treatment, which I highlighted to the committee on that report. Now, I'm conscious of the fact that when the minister, Honorable Sean Fraser, appeared before that committee, one of the members of parliament, if I'm not mistaken, I think that is uh, uh, um, uh, Jenny Kwan, Honorable Jenny Kwan, put this question to the minister. Why the differential financial requirement between the two countries? The response the minister gave was that, oh, we do not have financial partners in Nigeria. That is why we cannot use the guaranteed investment uh, GIC scheme, the guaranteed investment certificate scheme. But that is not true. Or that is not correct. I mean, or you, maybe probably, I think the proper term will be to say it's not correct because you do not need financial partners in Nigeria to be able to get a guaranteed investment certificate. And with IRCC has no business of even going into those issues. Those are issues the financial industry can adequately take care of. You do not need to sign any agreement with any bank in Nigeria for them to provide GIC. If I need GIC today, I can simply go online to a Canadian bank all I need to do is to have the equivalent cash in my Nigerian bank, log online into a Canadian bank, request for a GIC. All they will do is to request for the Nigerian bank to transfer the equivalent fund to their own Canadian account, then they issue me a GIC. So the idea of having a financial partner in Nigeria in order to use that SDS framework is not correct. You don't need a financial partner. I know many study permit applicants from Nigeria who have bought GIC form and included it as part of the application. Even though that is just to prove financial sufficiency, it will not entitle them to qualify under the SDS category because Nigeria is not in that category. But I'm highlighting that to show you that um, IRCC does not need any unique business relationship with any financial institution in Nigeria to implement it. So these are just like some of the subtle and overt racism you see, which is very evident when you compare the various uh, programs, you know, uh, as they apply between other countries and uh, the countries in Africa. Okay, I was wondering, you know, the fact that the Canadian government commissioned this report is a step in the right direction. However, I'm wondering if the hearing, uh, the committee hearing, uh, is just a box ticking event, or do you think they will actually 
put things in place to implement uh, changes to correct these uh, issues? You know, having appeared twice before this committee, the Citizenship and Immigration Committee, and uh, also having watched other proceedings in that committee, I have every reason to believe that all members of the committee have the best intention at heart. I am not sure, and I don't know any member of that committee, irrespective of their political affiliation, that was happy with the content of that report, as well as other damning evidence that was brought before the committee by witnesses who testified before that committee. Um, and I'm not surprised to say this because what you saw in that report actually, and I'm saying this as a Canadian, does not really represent who we are as a Canadian. I am not sure of any right-minded Canadian, irrespective of their political affiliation, that would be very happy with that report. I'm not sure. I don't know any right-minded Canadian that would be very happy with a continent being referred to as Dirty 30 by people who are paid from our taxpayers' money. So I give that committee the benefit of doubt. I believe they have the best intention at heart. I believe they will craft or they will take step in addressing that problem. But mind you, the committee report is not binding on IRCC. It is persuasive, not binding. So for now, all I can do is to sit back and watch what recommendation the committee makes and to what extent IRCC will be willing to implement those recommendations. Uh, I think most of the participants or witnesses who appeared before the committee were unanimous on the fact that uh, IRCC actually needs an independent body to oversee its activities rather than having that oversight over itself. It's not just working. There are just some few individuals in that organization who are crafting policies that tend to paint Canada in a very bad light before the rest of the world. And I can tell you, having been here for uh, many years now, I do not think um, these few individuals actually represent what Canada represents. I think they are rather misrepresenting Canada by the way they treat the applications from uh, African countries. And it's unfortunate because most of the people who submit this application, at the end of the day, the impression they have about Canada, sadly, it's actually the impression about they have about these few visa officers who take this decision that's really kind of um, unfortunately um, uh, uh, seems to be racist, or if I may say that in a polite term, but um, it's not just a case of seeming, it's actually racist in most cases. Yes. You know, this is quite surprising because, uh, you know, I've never been to Canada, but from what I've read and what I've heard, you know, Canada is considered yeah. the, you know, the the better neighbor of uh, US, you know, in terms of racism, yeah. that is more uh, of a, a glorious uh, nation that is uh, very friendly to everyone. So this report uh, paints a different picture, uh, surprisingly. So, um, so that's why I'm, I'm surprised about that. But I was wondering, one of your suggestions uh, is to have independent uh, oversight, some form of uh, body to oversee IRCC's handling of uh, visa applications, uh, etc. How, how would this work uh, in, in practical terms? So why I made that suggestion, of course, um, is because the issue, the problem we 
that has been identified both by the polar reports and evident from the committee sitting is the fact that the issue we are dealing with here is very systematic. It's not just something on the self-surface. It's something that's more like in the DNA of the department, unfortunately. It is embedded. And um, there are legal avenues for addressing issues of racism in IRCC, especially by applicants who are racially profiled. But the problem is that one, one thing, it is very difficult to say from a single, in the case of implicit, implicit as opposed to exp, in explicit racism, in the case of implicit racism, it is very difficult to spot and prove legally, right? So if you are denied a visa, it's very difficult for you to go and say, oh, the reason why I was denied this visa is because the officer was being racist. That might be true, but it would be very difficult to prove. Except if the officer clearly states, okay, I'm refusing you this visa because of your race, which of course will never happen. Yes. <laughs> will never happen. So that legal avenue for addressing this problem seems to be far-fetched because of the burden of proof on the basis, maybe burden of proof on the basis of race. But there are also other cases where race might not be an explicit factor. For example, you apply for study permit, you have you show proof of fund. And the officer says, we are refusing it because we are not sure you'll be leaving Canada at the end of this study, which is, of course, the blanket reason they often give. In such situation, if you feel that the decision is not right, you can go to federal court by way of judicial review to challenge it. That is a legal avenue available. But the problem is that these legal avenues address these matters on case-by-case -case basis. One, it doesn't address the general problem. It just addresses one person, one problem at a time. That is one. And secondly, why the legal mechanism is not effective here is cost. It is very expensive. Average cost of judicial review for, let's say, study visa refusal in Canada, average cost of judicial review in a federal court is $4,000 average. Now, a student who is coming here to study, study visa costs less than $300. If it is refused, now you have the choice, you have the choice of thinking, okay, do I spend $4,000 hiring a lawyer to go to court and challenge it? Or do I spend $300 and file another application, which at the end of the day may also get refused again? So some try second, third time. Maybe when they try it second, third time, they feel, oh, if it's reviewed, I think at this point, I have no option. I have to hire a lawyer. You hire a lawyer, the cost, the time it's going to take to address this problem. That's also another problem on its own. Then you have the institutional problem. Federal courts, which has jurisdiction to oversee decisions made by these visa officers, is currently being overloaded with decisions or cases challenging decision by visa officers. The highest or the bulk of the cases before the Federal Court of Canada today involve the IRCC, Citizenship and Immigration Canada, one way or the other. So you have a situation where the Federal Court is being overflowed with this decision from IRCC. And that consumes judicial resources, apart from the students 
or the applicant to have to pay to hire a lawyer. The federal court also is overloaded. Time that should have been spent adjudicating other Canadian cases are being spent adjudicating similarly, I mean, cases are similarly coming from decision, and in most cases, unreasonable decision by these visa officers. So these are the problems that exist with the current or existing method of dealing with these issues. So we thought that having an independent ombudsman who will be able to not look at individual cases, but also at, a, at some point in time, take a holistic approach of visa processing decision by the department will go a long way in addressing this problem, not just on case-by-case -case basis, but also holistically, while at the same time, freeing the federal courts of bulk of these cases so that it can focus on other important cases. Okay. Okay. I was wondering, is there uh, other ways as well, in addition to the oversight, uh, maybe ombudsman, uh, is there other ways you think uh, additional elements or uh, things that they can implement uh, to help uh, resolve this uh, issue, you know, what's been uh, exposed in the reports? Um, the reports, once again, noted systemic racism in the department. And this racism are not practiced by robots, they are practiced by humans. Uh, Canada as a country, the law clearly and explicitly uh, prohibits discrimination on the basis of race. So the implication is that individuals who are involved in racism, whether visa officers or government department, I mean, other um, government officers, are actually engaging in conduct that violate Canadian law. And there are consequences. And there should be consequences for that. Mm -hmm. So I think another way to address the problem is to actually ensure that individuals who are engaged in those co uh, conducts, there are consequences for their engaged in those conducts. The Polar Report noted widespread practice in that department. And I can tell you, even as of now that we're speaking, there is not a single individual in that department that has been, there's no disciplinary measure, disciplinary measure that has been taken against any individual in the department that has been involved in those things noted in the Polar Report. So what is the consequences of that? If you give people incentive to do their job badly, they will have no incentive to do it well. If people engage in this racist conduct, go without, I mean, they engage in this without any consequences. At a point in time, it kind of becomes institutionalized. They just feel, well, I can do it without any consequences. Nothing is gonna happen. If they know that engaging in such conduct will result in reprimand, or even them losing their job, they will sit up. But if they do it and nothing happens, it becomes a custom institutionalized. And I believe also there was a very good suggestion that was um, made by one of the witnesses that appeared before the committee, which is actually moving these visa officers, moving them from one visa office to another. Because when they remain in one office for over a long time, you know, that practice kind of become so associated with that office and that desk. Culture. It becomes a culture. So moving them around before that practice kind of become institutionalized in that particular one state may also be another way of dealing. And this was one of a very brilliant suggestion that was brought up by one of the uh, witnesses that testified before the committee, which of course before now I never thought of. But I think that will also be 
uh, I mean, a very important factor to take into consideration. Rotating these decision makers around visa offices is very important. Okay, so you know your research interest uh, centers on implications of race and artificial intelligence. You know, among other things, yeah. you research uh, into. You know, artificial intelligence is trained with data. You know, as you as you've stated in the uh, in the hearing as well. You know, and when you use a racist data to train an artificial intelligence technology, what that technology simply does is to regurgitate that racism and discrimination. So. You know, I think you called it garbage in, garbage out. So can you elaborate uh, on this, you know, with examples, you know, so that a layman like me will understand the ramifications of this uh, uh, that technology? Okay, uh, first, there is this um, misconception we generally have about technology. Uh, that would be a starting point to address. We do have this misconception that um, technology is not barriers. That may be true to some extent because um, uh, uh, technology, I mean, it, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it will be very difficult to imagine a situation where uh, somebody designs a computer, I mean, it's a, a, a software that is deliberately designed to be biased. Artificial intelligence technology, like you noted, rightly noted, is trained with data. So it might be designed race-free on barriers. Okay, but when you now AI learns from training, it learns from training. So when you train it appropriately, it will behave appropriately. If you train it biased, it will be biased. Let me give you a very funny example, and this was the example of a, a an AI technology that was developed. I think uh, that was by uh, Microsoft, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. That was a chat box that was designed to interact with people and then learn from them. So it kind of tweets and then it will also tweet back. So I think the people it was interacting with now kind of started feeding it with very racist, misogynist tweets. And then it also started regurgitating those tweets it was trained because that was what it learned. That was what it trained it with. So when that technology was trained, that chatbot was trained, it wasn't trained to be my, I mean, to be racist. But people that were interacting with it were feeding it with racist tweets. And it became racist and started tweeting racist tweets also. That's a very good example of AI. So when you use the tar data to train an AI, it is going to behave in accordance with the data you used to train it. Now, how does this apply to uh, immigration use of AI technology? Um, African countries have had historically low approval rates for immigration application, especially temporary resident visa application. Uh, one of the reports I, I, I used at the committee, I think, which was the March 2020 report, which shows Nigeria having about 12% study visa approval rate, and Nigeria be, being one of the top 10 study visa countries, application countries. Then you have um, Japan and Korea having, I think, 95 and 97% approval rate. 12% for Nigeria, Japan and Korea, 95, 97%. That is data, right? Now, 
if you use such kind of data to train an AI technology and then automate it to process immigration application, what you should never expect is to have a situation where, because AI is processing this application now, Nigeria is going to probably have like 50%, 40% approval rate. Never. It's not going to happen. What AI does is to kind of maintain the status quo from the data used to train it. So you don't feed biased data into AI, and then because it's technology, you're not expected to kind of regurgitate unbiased results. No, when you use this data to train the technology, the outcome or the output from that technology is going to be similar to the data used to train it. So the concern here now is this, IRCC, has vast amounts of historical data, which it can use to automate its AI uh, application processing. But the problem is that when you use this data that has been clearly biased against the so-called dirty 30 countries to train that AI technology, what you're gonna have from that AI technology is not gonna be different from what we have now. And the problem of doing that is that once you now outsource this stuff to technology, people will not have that impression, oh, is technology doing the work? It's no longer any human doing it. Yeah, human bias is there, but there are many ways human bias can crept into technology. And one fundamental way this can happen is where you use the data, which is product of human bias, to train an AI technology. That AI is going to be as good or as bad as the data used to train it. Are you familiar with the technology that IRCC uh, uses in their visa processing, uh, uh, um, you know, process? Um, I'm familiar with some of the technology they're using. I'm not familiar with the full technology they are using, especially with regards to AI. And uh, that's one of the problems we have always highlighted, lack of transparency with regards to use of AI technology by IRCC. Um, IRCC uses uh, Chinook software uh, for part of its visa uh, processing application. And uh, IRCC has consistently argued that Chinook software is not an AI-based te uh, 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 technology. It is a mere um, spreadsheet. And uh, that claim has been trailed by lots of doubt and skepticism, okay? Um, IRCC has also noted that it uses artificial intelligence technology to triage visa applications, but that it doesn't use it to make visa application decisions. This is the information IRCC have made public. However, the public information is different from the information we have been able to obtain internally through access to information requests. One of such documents actually shows that IRCC is currently using artificial intelligence technology to automate some approval decisions with regards to visa applications, and that they are currently planned to extend the use of that 
um, AI. Now, I don't know, and I can't tell you at what stage they are now, because some of the documentation we obtained here are documents that are prepared some years back, which of course gives us impression of the state of things some years back. So right now, I don't know to what extent that um, technology, AI technology is being used in uh, immigration uh, processing. And which of course brings me to another important recommendation I made when I appeared before the committee, they need to have an independent body of experts, you know, oversee IRCC's use of artificial intelligence technology so that we don't end up, you know, having uh, a digital version of human bias, which was very evident in the Polara report. Okay, so, uh, you know, I understand you've taken several steps to address racism within IRCC. That includes your uh, appearance uh, in the hearing as well. And I was wondering if you've noticed any change so far in your two appearances. You've made two appearances so far. Have you seen any change or have you heard any uh, action that has been taken by IRCC with regards to this issue? Um, I, I'm, not, um, I'm not aware of any yet uh, i'm aware of uh, commitments that has been made by the by the minister and some of the officers that appeared before the committee to um address um these uh, issues to what extent um there has been any change i think it would be too early to say but um having said that i, I think um I have seen indications that shows that um, if anything, nothing seems to be happening, if anything is happening at all. And I'll give you a very good example. Uh, last, last Sunday, uh, Ottawa had the annual Ottawa Marathon. Over two dozen of the participants in that marathon where international athletes, they were supposed to be coming from Africa, mainly Uganda, Kenya, and Nairobi. One of the participants was um, a lady known as uh, Galete Boker. Galete Boker is an Ethiopian athlete. She is the, she holds the record as the fastest woman in Canada marathon history. She won the 20, 2018 version of that Ottawa uh, uh, Marathon. And she did that in a record two hours, 22 minutes, and 17 seconds. That is historic record, the fastest. She broke her own record. OK? This woman, along with other participants who are supposed to participate in the um, marathon last Sunday, they couldn't get into Canada to participate in that marathon. Why? Because their visa was not issued by IRCC. So I read a news report, and the news report was saying it was a glitch, a glitch that prevented over dozens of international athletes from Africa from participating in the marathon. I was like, this is no glitch. You're just trying to color racism with uh, a glorious term. This is no glitch. This is a deliberate act. 
And why do I say it's deliberate? In 2018, there is this conference in Montreal known as Black AI Conference, which, of course, it's uh, the largest gathering of Black uh, 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 um, AI professionals, Black professionals who are into AI. And of course, you expect majority will come from Africa. In 2018, that conference was supposed to be held in Montreal. Over two dozen of experts from Africa who were supposed to be taking part in that event were not granted visa to come to that event. That was in 2018. Of course, the outcry was there. 2019, that same event was held in Vancouver, and one was expecting, okay, this time around, because of outcry, things would change. The same, exactly the same thing happens. Most of the participants from Africa for that uh, conference Black AI conference could not get into Canada because of visa issue. So when uh, um, uh, this marathon issue came up and somebody was saying it's a glitch, I was like, this is no glitch. This is systemic treatment people from this part of the continent have often been used to. So if you ask me whether things have changed, I, all I can tell you is that I, don't, I have not seen any results to be able to tell you that things are changing. But I remain optimistic. And why I remain optimistic is because I know, like I told you earlier, this is not who we are in Canada. So I am hoping there is going to be change. But at the same time, I'm waiting to see that change happen. OK, uh, Dr. Christian, you know, as we approach the, the end of um, this uh, episode, you know, just for young African youths watching this video now, you know, I was wondering, you know, what inspired you to go into your field of study? And, and what career path and academic path did you take to get where you are now? Uh, well, um, I'm, I'm, I'm of Nigerian descent. Uh, of course, being an African and Black, which is also what gets me interested in uh, what, uh, what's happening here with regards to this um, visa issue. And um, oh, when I had my first degree in Nigeria, uh, University of Lagos. When I left the University of, uh, when I left Nigeria to pursue education abroad, uh, my destination was not Canada. I just stopped over in Canada for two weeks summer school, and um, that two weeks, Canada kind of uh, gave me a very wonderful impression that you know that I still carry with me today. My original destination was to the United States. So even after the two weeks program, I left for the United States. That first love, that love at first sight I had for Canada kind of, you know, made me do a U-turn from US. I had to process my papers to return back to Canada to pursue my education here. And I can tell you that um, this country has been amazing. You know, it has given me all the opportunity I need to get to the pinnacle or to head to the, towards the pinnacle of my career. As a Black person, as an immigrant, I took that decision to come to this country. Maybe it was a snappy decision, but I've never regret that decision. And if I had to take that decision all over again, it will not change. I will not speak any other country. OK, uh, Dr. Gideon Christian, uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, and thanks for having me.
Okay. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Pan-African Experience. Join us on Facebook at The Pan-African Experience. Follow us on Twitter, TPA Experience. And follow us on Instagram, The Pan-African Experience. Visit our website at www.thepanafricanexperience.com.